We're going to be looking at this one chapter. Some of our weeks we've been able to look at two chapters, so we've been able to move through the book a little more quickly than one might think. But tonight we're only going to look at this one chapter, I think, because it's filled with so much about Christ. I don't want to, I don't want to go through it too quickly. This is the final chapter in what, when we began chapters 30 through 33, we called the Book of Consolation. Another book that we said kind of existed within the book of Jeremiah. And we said chapters 30 through 33 stand in contrast to most of the book of Jeremiah because these chapters are filled with so much hope. They're filled with with so much encouragement. And this hope springs from the Messiah who is spoken of in verses 14 through 16 of this chapter. So while this chapter begins dimly, you're going to see it brighten and brighten and brighten as it continues. Boy, it feels good to be able to hear myself when I'm preaching. Amen? Is it different tonight in here? Nobody's bothered by that, are they? Okay. All right. First thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 is this, is, is the Lord speaks to Jeremiah again. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will assure you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So Jeremiah now is still being detained in the courtyard at this time. And the setting is the same setting as we saw in chapter 32. Jerusalem is about to finally and completely fall. And so the Lord tells Jeremiah, he says, call unto me. And God promises him, if you call unto me, then then I'm going to speak to you. Now, what this shows us is the Lord doesn't circumvent a relationship with his prophets to speak to them. In other words, God doesn't just speak to the prophets. God speaks to these prophets through a relationship that He has with them. He says, call unto me. God's prophets were not in some mystical state, overtaken by God and just filled with information as if they were just downloading something from some celestial cloud in the heaven. Jeremiah was to seek the Lord in prayer, and as he sought the Lord in prayer, the Lord was going to speak to him. Now, I want to tell you this because it's so important when we look at a text like this. We shouldn't think that we can call on God for some new knowledge to be revealed to us like was revealed to Jeremiah here. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in a day in which the revelation of Scripture was still being given. You and I today have the Bible. The Bible is complete. There is no revelation. God is so sure about this that He says, Do not add to, do not take away, because if you add to or take away, I will add curses unto you. Now what should we do? We should seek the Lord in prayer and ask Him to reveal to us the written Word of God. And we should never expect to understand anything that the Bible says if we don't have a relationship with the author of Scripture. And through a relationship with Christ, not only can we understand the Word, but we can live the Word through the power of Christ in us. 
So important because I have seen people take this text here and they'll say, call unto me and I will show you wonderful things. And the idea is, is God's going to reveal some new knowledge to them if they have some deep mystical relationship with God. Just a moment ago, by the providence of God, we sang the hymn. And Christina was mentioning about this hymn that we sang just a minute ago. What more can He say to you than He has said? That's what the hymn said. What more can He say? He said it all in the Word of God. He said it all from Genesis through Revelation. And so never look at a guy like Jeremiah and say, Oh, call unto me and I will tell you marvelous things. Now if I do that, then God's going to tell me all of this new stuff that nobody has ever heard. No, if you call to God, what God will do is help you to understand what He has already revealed in the Word of God. We don't add to the Word of God. We don't take away the Word from the Word of God. There is no new revelation. There is only what has already been revealed in the 66 books of Holy Scripture. Now, the Lord tells Jeremiah in verses 4 and 5 that the city will fall. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. So he says here that things are going to get worse before they get better. In verse 4, you see a strategy that was being used by Judah to keep the Babylonians out of the city. What they did was they tore down some of the royal houses and some of the other houses in the city for the purpose of holding up the walls around Jerusalem. So you could imagine them taking down uh, uh, wood and the pieces of structure in these royal, in these royal houses and, and leaning that against the wall to keep the walls up because the Babylonians were about to, to destroy the walls. And this really shows how desperate the people had become to protect their city. But ironically, Ironically, the people were destroying their own city in hopes that their city wouldn't be destroyed. Isn't that interesting? They were tearing down the houses in the city in hopes that the city itself would not be torn down. Now, despite their valiant effort, God says the city is going to be filled with the dead bodies of the Jewish people. And why? Why? The reasoning is very simple. Because it's the Lord who is doing this. You see that in verse 5. Again, this is another example of the Jewish people suffering needlessly. Jeremiah had already told them. He said, all you have to do is submit to what God's doing. God is disciplining our nation. God is bringing discipline against our nation because of our sin. And He's using the Babylonians to do that. He had already told them. If you will simply submit to the discipline that God is doing, God will eventually release us from this captivity and we will come back and we will build this city once again. But the people, the false prophet said, no, 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 no. That's not what God says at all. What God says is we will prevail. We will make it. We will beat Babylon. Jeremiah shook his head. No, no, you won't. And so all of this destruction they're doing to their own city, all of the lives that are being lost here, it's all needless. They should have simply submitted and said, Lord, we're going to take our medicine. It's time for us to be taken to the woodshed 
And there's no reason for us to run from it. You ever did that when you were a kid? You know, things are so different now. People used to whip kids, amen? There's nothing wrong with that either. It's, 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 it's quite a good thing, by the way, to whip children. Because children deserve to be whipped very often. And, and, you know, usually if you'll do that when they're young, you don't have to do that a whole lot when they get older. Um, but I'll tell you what, boy, we whipped and whipped and whipped with our kids until finally we whipped them into shape and they didn't give us a whole lot of trouble. But I don't know if this happened to you when you were a kid, but sometimes when we were kids, we, knew, we always knew when we were getting whippings, you know? Because nobody threatened you back then. You were getting a whipping before you were even told anything about it, right? You were just standing there and all of a sudden you were being whipped. You're thinking, good grief, where did this come from? There's no warning, but sometimes you knew when the whipping was coming, and sometimes you might just go off to the woods for a little while. But you always knew in your heart, oh boy, i got to go back home. And when I get home, I always thought I could outrun my mom. She would have me with one arm, and I would just run the circle around her. <laughs> Try to stay just a little bit ahead of it, you know, but I, but I never could. But what's the point I'm making? I'm, it, it's just a delayed is all it is. You're just delaying the discipline. And that's what they were doing. They were delaying this discipline. And Jeremiah says, you know, just just submit. The city's going to fall. And he tells them in verses 6 through 9 that that there is hope. There is hope. Behold, I will bring bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy. A praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. So the one who wounds the city says that he's going to heal the city. I want you to look at all the promises here that you see in verses 6 through 9 that the Lord gives the people. First of all, I will heal the people. Secondly, I will give them abundance and prosperity. Thirdly, I will restore the nation. Fourthly, I will cleanse them from sin and rebellion. Fifthly, I will make this city a city of joy. And sixthly, I will make the nations fear the Lord through what I do in this city. Now, now what is he talking about here? The only way I think that you can really explain the promises here is this is a future look into the millennial kingdom. And Christ sets up His kingdom on this earth. And the means by which God sets up His kingdom is the forgiveness of sin through Christ. The Scripture teaches that during the millennial reign, Christ will rule from Jerusalem, from this city. And it will be a time like no other in history. The only thing that will eclipse... The millennial reign of Christ, which lasts a thousand years from Jerusalem, the only thing that will eclipse that is the new Jerusalem that descends from the heavens. And heaven and earth come together. And there we have God's work complete at the end. But I want you to know that this hope is not just for the Jewish people. What you see in here about the abundance and prosperity, the restoring of the nation, the cleansing of sin and rebellion, the joy and the nations fearing the Lord through what God is doing. That's not just for Jewish people. That's for Gentiles too. 
Because we are all sons and gods. I mean, we are all sons and daughters of Abraham through Christ. We are grafted into this wonderful kingdom of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this isn't just hope for the Jewish people. This is hope for all who belong to Christ. Reigning with Christ during the millennium. And and what a wonderful, wonderful time uh, that will be. And and that's a study all in in and of itself. But but it's certainly something that Scripture teaches. That for a thousand years Christ will rule on this earth. And that those who belong to Him will rule with Him. The fourth thing I want you to see is in verses 10 and 11. The temple will be restored. Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say, It is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His steadfast love and forever for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord so after the devastation of Babylon no one could ever imagine in a million years that this city would ever be rebuilt it's going to be so bad Jeremiah says it's going to be without people or animals in it but God says despite all of the devastation that comes against this city I'm going to fill it again with joy He says people are going to be married in this city again, which implies future generations living in this city. That offerings are going to be brought to the house of the Lord once again. And the restoration of the temple here was symbolic of the health of the city because with the temple, you could expect the blessing of God. And the song that's mentioned in verse 11, which is a beautiful song, is a song that's found in a number of different places in the Bible. It's found in Psalm 100 in verse 5. It's found in Psalm 106 in verse 1, Psalm 107, 1, Psalm 118, Psalm 136. So what you see there is, is a song that's sung over and over. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. As I mentioned earlier, after 70 years in Babylon, the Jews would return. Now you've read the book of Ezra, you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know that when they return, they return to a devastated city. And they're going to unite together and they're going to build. And even the temple itself will be restored. And so in some part, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they they document the fulfillment of of this prophecy. Now look at verses 12 and 13. You see the shepherds will be restored. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin. The places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. So it's not just Jerusalem. It's even these surrounding cities and countrysides that would be restored. Once again, you would have shepherds out there keeping their flocks, which uh, simply symbolizes a return to normal. The city that had been without man or without beast would now have both. It would have beasts and it would have people. So the idea is farming. Farming was going to return. 
And all the cities that are mentioned there, they're mentioned to show that the restoration stretches out among all these different cities around Jerusalem. The end of verse 13 shows the, the work of a shepherd. He counts his sheep one by one as they enter the family. And if you were trying to kind of outline this, what you'd see is, is you'd see a restoration of family. People are married again. You'd see a restoration of the faith. The temple is, is restored. And then you'd see a, a restoration of even farming. And so that, that's what the community needs. It needs family, and it needs faith, and it needs farming. And that sounds very simple to us, but in those days, that's what you needed. Those three things. Your families, and your faith, and your farming. And, and that was society. And so he says, I'm going to restore all of this back to you. The, the shepherds here, all of those who work the land, that they're going to be coming back. And then that brings us to verses 14 through 22. The coming Messiah. Now I want you to see, first of all, uh, the Messiah himself in verses 16 through 18. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Well, I'll tell you, those are beautiful prophecies concerning Christ. And what I want to do now is just point out to you some things from the text concerning the promise of Christ. First of all, these promises... Uh, to the Jewish people are fulfilled in Christ. Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, there are those people who believe that God's Chosen people are the Jewish people, and that that's without condition. In other words, if you're Jewish, you belong to God. But the idea that anyone, even Jewish people, can be saved outside of Christ is contrary to Scripture. It was Christ Himself who warned the Jewish people that if they did not believe in Him, that they would die in their sins. The fact is, there's not any religion, not even the religion of Judaism, that can lead a person to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. What God is doing in this world, He is going to do through Jesus. And that's what you see in in verses 14 and 15. These coming days, all of this is going to be fulfilled through this righteous branch, this Savior that's coming. And that's when we see in verse 15 that the Messiah will be of the lineage of David. Both David and uh, Jesus um, were from the tribe of Judah. Joseph, who was Mary's husband, was of the lineage of Judah. And as Jesus' adoptive father, that made Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And when he says the branch here, that branch springing forth, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes a child being born. A child springing forth from another. Now interestingly, not only is the Messiah called the branch of David, but in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, 
Jesus is also called the root of David. So think about that with me for a minute. He is the root of David, which means he is the one that David came from. And he is the branch of David. He came through him. Think about that for a minute. He is the root of David. David came from him. And he is the branch of David. He came through the lineage of David. Now how in the world could one person be the root and the branch? The only way that's possible is if the being is eternal. The only way that's possible is if the being existed before the being was born. Right? It's the only way you can be the root and the branch at the same time. And that is the glory of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have the Messiah who is not only coming from David, but David comes from Him as well. Christ is both the root and the branch. That's deep stuff, y'all. Christ didn't come into existence. Christ is eternal. Then we see in verses 15 and 16, the Messiah will execute justice and righteousness in the land. We see that in verses 15 and 16, which implies if you're going to execute righteousness, if you're going to execute uh, justice, what does that imply? Well, it implies you have the power to do it. But how can you, because how can you execute something if you don't have the power to execute it? And the wonderful thing when you see the, the, the rest of the Bible, when you read especially the book of Revelation, you see Christ returning. And what is He doing when He's returning? He is wielding a sword. And He brings judgment on the enemies of justice and righteousness, Jesus does. He's going to save Judah. He's going to set up this holy city of Jerusalem as a secure place. And such a transformation is going to happen to this city that the name of this city, look what he says. He says the name of this city will be changed to the Lord is our righteousness. Which, by the way, is the same name that Jeremiah gave the Messiah in chapter 23, 6. So what does that mean? Okay, so so this is is it the name of the city? The Lord is our righteous. Is that the name of the city, or is that the name of the Savior? Which is it? Well, the reason that the city is named the Lord is our righteousness is because the city is a reflection of the character of the Lord. It reflects the righteousness of the Lord, and so the city itself is now known by the very character of the Messiah. And so the name of the Messiah and the name of the city is the same. And when we think about heaven, we should think about that. We should think about the holy city of heaven is a reflection of the holy God who rules over heaven. Now notice in verses 17 and 18 that the Messiah will be both an eternal king and an eternal priest. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So the text says there's going to be a permanent descendant of David on the throne. 
Now, some people might say, and there have been people who say this, well, the Word of God has failed us because there's not a man on the throne now. Forget being of the lineage of David. There's not a man on the throne at all in Jerusalem. That's what they would say. How could that prophecy be true? It's true because of this church. It's true because it's fulfilled in Christ. And Christ is on the throne right now. And He's ruling right now. And He is the King, even as we speak. And then some may even point to the idea of this priestly system. And they say, well, the promise here is they would never have a person not fulfilling the priestly system here. But clearly, the priestly system doesn't exist right now. Not only do they not have a priesthood, but, but, a, but a critic of the Bible might say they don't even have a temple. Again, church, this is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the high priest. He is the one who is in heaven interceding for His own. Hebrews 4 and 14 tells us we don't need any more priests because we have a high priest, our high priest, who is in heaven. He is interceding for us eternally. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that all of the priesthood was fulfilled in the person of Christ. And the offerings mentioned in in verse 18 are symbolic because we know that Christ tells us that there is no need for the blood of goats and bulls anymore. The ultimate sacrifice has already been made. It is so important for us to recognize here that Christ is both king and priest. And this is different than any other earthly king that Israel had known. But not only that, but he is a king... And a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember in Genesis 14, 18, that's the only king and priest you see in Scripture. King of Salem. Melchizedek. And so we see here that this Messiah will not only be an eternal king, sitting on the throne of David forever, but he will also be an eternal priest, eternally interceding for those who belong to him. And then he says in verses 19 through 22 that the covenant cannot be broken. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. So he says here that Israel is going to have a king and a priest, and that is as certain as day and night. Notice the huge amount of people the king's going to reign over. His people will be like the number of grains of sand on the seashore or, or the stars that, that are up in the heavens. And this reminds us of the language that God used when he promised to bless the descendants of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Now, uh, somebody who's really looking at this text closely might say, well, what about the language here, Pastor, that's concerning the priests? Well, I think that that can really only be fulfilled when we understand what the New Testament says about believers. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're saved, you are a part of a holy priesthood. Um, Beginning with Abraham, God promised to make Himself a people that He would bless 
And in Christ, we see all the promises of God confirmed. And He has made for Himself a holy people who make up a royal priesthood. We belong to Him. And so I think that's how that's fulfilled there. The church is the fulfillment of all of these priests that are in this holy city. And then we see in verses 22 through 26 that God will silence the enemies of Israel. I'm sorry, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that He chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then will I reject the offspring of David and of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. You know, after seeing what God did to the northern and southern kingdoms, it's no surprise that people would believe that this nation had been eternally cast away from God. So these watching nations, they look at Israel and they're just disgusted by them. They wish the worst for them. But God says to them, He says, No matter what these nations think of you, I will not break my promises to you. He says, I will indeed choose a Jewish man to rule the nation, and through him I will extend mercy to you, and I will extend prosperity to the land. Who is that chosen man, church? It's Christ. It's Christ Himself. And so he says, despite all these critics that have looked at you, who who have been destroyed in the north and been destroyed in the south, despite all of this, know this, I have promised to raise up a man And through that man, mercy and prosperity will be extended to those he rules over. And that is Christ's church. You know, we we live in a world today where we as Christians, we have critics, don't we? They criticize our morals. They criticize our beliefs. They criticize our Bible. They, They criticize our Savior. They criticize our warnings. They criticize our hope. We live in this world, and and I hurt so much for our young people because so many of our young people have not been trained in the areas of righteousness. They they don't know the Bible. They they can't defend their faith. When all this criticism comes against them, they they cave, they, they give in, and they think, well, I've just been taught something that's not true. My whole life. And the reality is they've never really been taught anything. They've just listened to some sermons. They don't really know what they believe. So they're just, you know, when the world comes and criticizes, they say, well, the world must be right. And certainly that was a temptation with the Jewish people hearing all this criticism. Are you kidding me? Look at what God's doing here. This doesn't make any sense. There's no way that you have any hope. And this is what we have to remember, church. We have the promises of God on our side. That's it. The criticism of the world is there. But over here, we have the promises of God. And we can listen to the criticism of the world, or we can listen to the promises of God. That's our choice. But I'll tell you, if you listen to the criticism of the world, you will forsake your God. 
If you listen to the promises of God, you will forsake the world. But here's the good news, church. If you belong to Him, the Lord will not allow you to be forsaken. Christ has come. And Christ has given us precious promises. And just as God told Jeremiah here, He will not break His promise. Whatever He has promised to you, if you have entered into covenant through faith in Christ, whatever He has promised to you, my dear friend, will come to pass. You can bank on it. Amen? Not a single saved person will be forsaken. Not a single one. Not a single one. So that ends what's called the book of consolation in the book of Jeremiah. And it certainly ended with a bang, didn't it? Beautiful, beautiful promises here. And you know, sometimes I wonder, when I read Jeremiah, I wonder what kept him going. I've talked many times to y'all about him having essentially no converts, was told not to get married, could not go to funerals, was told not to even go to weddings. I mean, how this guy kept going, people hating him, people trying to kill him. How did he keep going, church? The promises. That's how he kept going. How are you going to keep going? The promises. The promises. Thank you, Lord, for the promises.